0: Hi, I'm Justin Cole. Welcome to this special episode of Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing the concept of vaccine hesitancy and its impact on COVID-19 vaccination efforts across the world. I am joined by Dr. Alita Chen, Interim Dean and Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice in the School of Pharmacy at Cedarville University. To the podcast. For the first time, I'm pleased to have a live audience joining us today via Zoom for this special recording of Disrupt. Today, we will be discussing a topic of public interest, vaccine hesitancy related to the COVID-19 vaccines. I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Alita Chen, who is an expert in the social administrative sciences. She has a strong interest in background in patient-centered communication approaches, like motivational interviewing, which is a topic we'll be discussing later on in the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Alita.
1: Welcome, Justin. Thanks so much for having me here today.
0: Yeah, great. All right. Well, we always want to start by learning about each of our guests. So could you tell us a bit more about yourself and your background?
1: Sure, I'd love to. Um, So I'm a native Ohioan. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and I feel like my life journey kept taking me further south in the state. So I went to Ohio Northern uh, for my pharmacy degree. And then I did move a little west and went to Purdue for my PhD. And then I came back to the Cedarville area to join the School of Pharmacy, uh, when it really launched in 2011, and then brought our first class in 2012. So this is my 10th year here at Cedarville. And I'm really thankful that God has brought myself and my family here. Um, I'm married. I have a husband, Chetat, who's an aeronautical engineer. And we have a five-year-old daughter, Mingan, who uh, is a budding uh, interest in science and and health. But who knows where, where she will go in the future.
0: Yeah, and I can tell you that she is someone that brings a smile to everyone's face when we see her. We're glad to see her around here. Oh, well, thank you. All right. So to start, I think it would be helpful to review the current status of COVID-19 vaccines here in the U.S. and really across the world. So um, here in the U.S., as of today, three vaccines have been granted emergency use authorization from the FDA. Uh, One from Pfizer-BioNTech, one from Moderna, and most recently from Johnson & Johnson. And there are, of course, more in the pipeline at this point. And as of today, um, from what I understand, over 93 million Americans have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine, and around 10% of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated against COVID-19 at this point. So as these vaccines continue to become more available here in the United States, some of that through local pharmacies, one significant factor affecting the uptake of these vaccines in the U.S. and across the world is something called vaccine hesitancy. So, Dr. Chen, um, would you be willing to explain what vaccine hesitancy is?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Vaccine hesitancy is really, if a vaccine is available, you can get it. It's really making a decision to either delay getting it or refuse it outright. So it's, it's available, you can get it, but not right now, maybe later, or maybe not ever, is really your response. That's what we call vaccine hesitancy.
0: Okay, great. I I do know that there are a number of other related terms in this space, including something called vaccine confidence. So for consistency throughout this podcast, we're going to stick with using the term vaccine hesitancy. Um, But it is important to know that one of the things that people in this field talk about quite a bit is something called vaccine confidence, which is simply helping people to have information that helps them understand the role of vaccines and how they can be used. So I I also want to turn a little bit personal here and ask you a simple question, and that is, why is this a topic that's of interest to you?
1: Well, I think for me, it's a topic of interest because it relates to kind of a bigger idea, which is health beliefs. And that's something I'm really interested in and passionate about. We all have an understanding of what causes us to have a change in our health and what we can do to fix it. Uh, If we think about it, let's say the last time you got sick, what did you attribute it to? I think all of us in our mind can form something. Maybe for some of us, it's like, I know that person that got me sick. Um, Or maybe for some of us, it's, it's an unknown factor, or we believe that maybe we weren't doing healthy things, but there's some sort of belief in what causes that. And it can also be faith related, right? There's faith components as part of that, who is in control of my health and you know the role god plays in beginning and ending our days and and things like that. So so a lot of these things come together that are known as health beliefs and they influence how we make decisions about what to do with our health, including whether or not to vaccinate. So I'm interested in this because while well, I recognize there's different opinions on whether or not to get vaccinated, different beliefs about it. I I think it's important to understand and connect with the person about where they come from and what they believe in order to help figure out what the best best path is for them moving forward.
0: Yeah, that's great. And you bring up a great point. I think in our culture, it seems like many things are very polarizing. You either are completely for, or completely against something. And I think that's true here in the vaccine space. So I just want to clear the air and say, you're not saying that every single person under all circumstances should receive a vaccine, correct?
1: Correct. Because that's not what the evidence would say. And I also believe that there is personal choice in many things, right? We we want freedom to make our decisions we can we have control over our own bodies to a certain extent and and really i recognize and value each per each person's ability and and need to make their own decisions
0: that's great okay so this topic is of particular attention today because of course the because of the massive efforts to immunize people around the world against covid-19 Some recent studies have suggested that between 30 and 40% of Americans are unlikely to receive the vaccine at this point. So we would say that they are are people who are experiencing or expressing vaccine hesitancy. So even when we account for those who might have immunity from actually contracting COVID-19, this would mean that as a society, we may not reach a level of vaccination that's high enough to get to that magic idea of herd immunity here in the US which is essentially just when enough people become immune to a disease to make spread unlikely. So um, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about this idea of health beliefs that you've already um, mentioned. So what is this health belief model and why does it influence our decisions about vaccines?
1: Well, health beliefs, like I mentioned earlier, really come from a variety of things, but there are, i There are our idea of what causes a change in health status and what we can do to, to change it, whether it's in our control or out of our control. And if you think about it, a lot of it is rooted in how you grew up, what your family thought about it. Think back to the days when you were a kid and what your mom or your dad or whatever parental influence you had, what decisions they made in terms of your health? How did your family react to health? A lot of us carry on what we saw in our childhood or what people around us did. Now, over time, that's changed and grown as we've understood things more, or if we've talked with other people and formed different beliefs, but that's really our health beliefs and that influences whether or not we choose treatment. So if we look at the health belief model, it talks about a couple of different things. It talks about our background as an influence on whether or not we choose to make a decision. It also talks about how susceptible we think we are to something. So if we take something like COVID-19, different people may have very different beliefs on how susceptible they are to COVID-19 itself, as well as the consequences of COVID-19. So we think about getting hospitalized or even death. So different groups will have different perceptions of that risk. There's also gonna be different perceptions of the benefit of getting a vaccine. For some people, they may be unsure. They may be questioning. Or maybe they understand, but they don't think the benefits outweigh the risk. We're all doing kind of that risk-benefit analysis as, as we're thinking through things. And as we gather information and as we understand what's out there, we make that decision whether or not to vaccinate rooted in our health beliefs. So what, where we come from and who we are, along with how, much, how susceptible we think we really are to something and what we can, if we can really do anything to change it.
0: That's great. And I think to add to that, a recognition within the health belief model is that health is not just a physical state. It is a state that involves, yes, our physical bodies, but also our emotions and our social interactions and the things that we believe about spiritual things around us. And so your, even your worldview um, is very important when you're thinking through how we make decisions about health and even how we view health. So transitioning now a little bit closer to the topic of vaccine hesitancy. So can you talk about some of the specific health beliefs or factors that play into whether one might be vaccine hesitant?
1: Yeah, that would be a really good starting point. So one is what we'd like to call confidence, right? I think we can group it really into three different C's, confidence, complacency and convenience. So let's talk about confidence first. So this is things like How effective do we think it is? Will it work? Is it safe? What have people around us said? We think about the media or our religious and cultural views, our faith communities. What experiences have we had with vaccinations or the healthcare system? Maybe politics, policies, social media. Um, It's a new vaccine. Maybe even an attitude or a perception or a conversation with another healthcare professional all these kind of influence our confidence and whether or not we think this vaccine is gonna work for me. Because really it is a personal thing. It's not that whether or not it's gonna work for everybody, you're really filtering it through the lens of, is it gonna work for me? Or for the people I directly talk with at least. Another thing might be complacency, right? Um, So it kind of goes along with this, but it's really the concept of how much risk do I think I have for this disease? someone who is younger and maybe doesn't have a lot of what we call comorbidities, right? Um, Other health conditions that might make us more at risk for some of the negative things associated with COVID, or we may be a little bit more hesitant to get the vaccine because we don't see it as a problem. I'm not going to really do too bad. It's just a really bad cold for me. Um, I might also see a lack of benefit. I'm going to go ahead and get a vaccine, but what am I going to get out of it? How do I actually... Take care of my health. Um, am I? What responsibilities do I have? Will this kind of, you know, disrupt my life? And also the norms around me. We think about our social norms. Well, a lot of times, what our community around us is doing influences our own decision making. Another thing could also be con- uh, convenience. So if we think about it, this is also ideas of how available is the vaccine, and. The vaccine has had different stages of availability and we're progressing through those different stages. But is it physically available to me? Is it affordable? And in this case, the COVID-19 vaccine is given out free so that that changes that discussion. But for other vaccines, that can be a huge factor. My understanding and my ability to digest health information. I mean, probably even in this podcast, I've used some healthcare professional terms without even thinking about it. I spent way too long in school, and sometimes I don't realize I use words that I probably shouldn't use every day because I'm just so used to them. And I don't think we always do a great job understanding. I mean, I kind of liken it because I'm married to an engineer, talking with an engineer about math. I don't understand half the things an engineer might say about math, but again, the importance is using terms that someone can understand. And so healthcare care providers can really contribute to this. Sometimes, too, the schedules of vaccines can contribute to this convenience factor. So if we think about these vaccines, 21 or 28 days apart for two separate doses, that requires a significant disruption to daily life in order to make sure that you get both doses of the vaccine. You might have to take off work or whatever it may be. So those are just a few of the things I can think about.
0: Great, that's a a wonderful overview of some of the factors that play into these decisions for all of us. What are some of the specific concerns that you've heard um, expressed about the COVID-19 vaccines that are available?
1: There have been a lot of concerns expressed. I'm gonna put them in a few buckets, shall we say. The first bucket is does it actually, I call it the does it actually work bucket. Um, (laughs) Is it gonna do anything? We all hear the stories every year about the flu vaccine, right? This flu vaccine comes out and then we hear 30 or 60% effective in preventing the flu. And a lot of times we take that data point and we say, okay, is the COVID vaccine gonna be exactly like that? Am I gonna get this and I'm still gonna get COVID anyway? Or the vaccine came out so quickly. Did we really have enough time to make sure it actually worked? These are all questions that surround us. It's also different vaccine technology, shall we say, than we've used before. It's a new approach to making a vaccine and to having the body react to it. So these are all questions that surround that. And kind of going hand in hand, is, is it actually safe? So again, very quick, um, a year ago, right about this time, everything started shutting down. I remember a year ago at this time, the university was making decisions based on the governor's recommendations to, to move its students to an online format. And today we have what, 90 some million people vaccinated? That seems very quick for a lot of people. And so is it really safe? Do we know if it's safe in that time frame? And I would say the other big bucket of concerns relate to kind of, I would call ethical um, moral considerations. So, there's questions surrounding whether or not the vaccine is going to alter some part of me or if it's going to be used in terms of tracking my identity or anything like that, or even questions regarding how the vaccine was developed and if everything with used to develop the vaccine was done in an ethical manner and what implication does that have for my worldview? So those are kind of some of the big things I see in terms of, questions I've gotten.
0: Yeah, and from what I've seen, those are uh, many of the most common concerns that have been expressed about the COVID-19 vaccines. One thing that's become clear to me is that views on vaccines may vary based on a whole host of factors. And you've described that to us as well. Those can be religious convictions, um, political affiliations, race, ethnicity, a whole host of other factors. For example, if we look at some of the research that's been published recently, um, it even varies by whether you have a higher level of education or not. Those with college degrees tend to be more hesitant about these vaccines. Um, It could be um, related to um, whether you are a part of a racial or ethnic group that's considered a minority here in the United States. Um, And even the party, the political party that you tend to support most often, that plays into how hesitant you might be um, with vaccines. So with that framework in mind, I wanna take a moment to focus on the views of vaccines among minority groups here in the United States, who we know have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. So for example, we know that in the US, black people have died at a rate 1.4 times higher than white people. It's unfortunate that's the statistic that we, that we see today. The rates of death are also higher in American Indian and Alaskan natives, in the Hispanic or Latino populations. And and that's something I think we need to take really seriously. So um, I would love to hear a little bit, um, specifically from your perspective, Alita, um, how do you see ethnicity, culture and race playing into vaccine hesitancy and our health beliefs?
1: Well, I think there's a number of different ways it plays into it. So I think we, one area we need to look at is the historical influence. You know, we look throughout history and it doesn't just have to be the last couple hundred years in the United States. It can be anywhere in history. But scientists have decided that the needs of many outweigh the needs of a few. Or they pick a patient population and they say, it's okay to do this in them because of, insert reason here. And that has led people to value science over the person God created. And that has led to often a very high mistrust of the medical community and and healthcare professionals because there have been a number of unethical projects, particularly even in recent memory, we think of the Tuskegee syphilis study among others, where patients were denied treatment after treatment became available just or signs and because they viewed the people as not worthwhile enough to offer treatment to. And that's heartbreaking. I mean, as, as a believer, I can't reconcile my faith with those actions. I Christ calls me to love people, right? Love God and love my neighbor as myself. And that's just not something that I can imagine. But this has happened and we have to acknowledge that. We can't ignore the fact that it's happened and that's caused a lot of mistrust. There's also been a lot of health inequity over the years. So if we look, there are certain areas, communities, populations that have access issues to healthcare. So they can't walk down the street and find a healthcare clinic that can take care of them, at least at a rate that is affordable. They can't access the medications they need when they need them. They don't have a primary care provider that walks alongside them in their health journey. Oftentimes it's fragmented care that may not always give them what they need. And so we've got a current lived experience that is also there too. So we recognize the past, but we also recognize what's going on in the present, that there's unfair access. I mean, even if you think about rural communities, they are incredibly underserved in terms of access to healthcare professionals. And so there's many places, both urban and rural, across all different populations that suffer from health inequity and also past history of unfair treatment. And we see also differences in education, income and housing, things we call um, in the healthcare community as the social determinants of health. They really lead to disparities in healthcare, so inequity in healthcare. And that, again, explains some of the reasons why we might see hesitancy because they're not sure that they can Trust what I'm saying. They've not had an opportunity to build a collaborative relationship with a healthcare professional that truly wants to listen to them, hear their story, understand their perspective, and then work with them to determine care. Not tell them what to do, but work with them to determine the next steps of care.
0: Yeah, that's great. And a perfect segue to really transition to this whole idea of how do we promote shared decision making and autonomy for um, people about their health decisions as it relates to COVID 19 vaccinations. So, I want to um, turn towards ways in which healthcare providers can enhance vaccine confidence and address vaccine hesitancy. So, from my understanding, um, there are a lot of different approaches to promoting vaccine confidence that have been studied and that, that I've seen personally. These can include educational approaches. We've probably all seen social media campaigns, various communication strategies that are used, sometimes billboards as you're driving down the highway. Um, In this literature, though, it seems to me that educational approaches alone do not greatly impact vaccine hesitancy rates. Um, I personally think this may be due to something called confirmation bias, and essentially, that's a fancy term that simply describes that we as people tend to look for information that confirms our previously held beliefs. Now, this can be a really good thing in a lot of areas of life, um, particularly when I think about matters of faith. So when we come across information on the other side that contradicts our own beliefs, we tend to either dismiss or disregard it. So this um, factor of confirmation bias may actually contribute to the lack of impact observed when we try to just push information at people and get them to um, just accept another alternative fact. Um, And so when we think about that and that educational initiatives, social media campaigns are roundly ineffective for helping people um, to make health decisions, what can we do as healthcare providers? Um, Alita, what other approaches may be effective at addressing vaccine hesitancy and promoting vaccine confidence? I
1: think that's a great question to ask. Think about the last time someone recommended you do something. If it fit within what you already wanted to do, you're probably like, okay, great idea. But if not, you probably resisted, or at least maybe inside you resisted a little bit. A lot of times we spend time pushing information at people, telling people what they need to do or what science says they need to do. And while it's important to get good information out there, the educational initiatives, like you said, we have to recognize that people make their own decisions. I can't make a decision for you. And so we want to think about communication strategies that are patient-centered, not me-centered, not provider-centered. And so one that we talk about a lot in the School of Pharmacy and and you see commonly among healthcare being discussed today is called motivational interviewing. Long word, fancy term for talk to the person and really talk with the person, right? You're having a conversation. You're having a conversation where you do more listening than talking and you hear the patient's perspectives And then as it's appropriate you share information and you really help them understand where they want to be and what they want to do and what health behaviors lead to that it's a conversation that shows that you care and you want to collaborate and i think when we do that approach that really shows and builds trust which i think is the foundation for most provider relationships with our patients because we got to have trust first before we talk about what to do for your health.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I like to think of motivational interviewing as taking us beyond simply understanding what someone thinks and getting deeper to how they think. Asking about their thought process, listening to them so that we understand and then having a dialogue afterward. It's really a partnership between the provider and the patient that promotes this idea of shared decision-making, where I am not a provider telling you what you should do. We are partnering together to promote your overall health. And again, that includes every aspect of who we are, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual. So Alita, tell us a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of how motivational interviewing works. If I could use the term, what are some micro skills or or basic principles that um, this idea of motivational interviewing leverages?
1: That's a great question. So one thing is really expressing empathy. When someone shares something that's maybe difficult for them to share or it's something challenging going on in their life, sometimes it can make you uncomfortable. And you're not quite sure how to respond. So we tend to do something where we skip over it and move on to our next point. But it's about staying in that moment, showing that someone that you're listening and even something simple like, I'm sorry, or that sounds really difficult, gives that connection and helps them understand that I care. And I would say, you know, looking for my faith. Wow. I mean, we are called to care for others. This is a great opportunity to demonstrate my faith in my practice. Uh, Another thing is listening, right? So I got to listen more than I talk um, and reflective listening, right? Repeating back to people. So it shows you're paying attention, not just thinking about the next thing you want to say. Developing discrepancy is another big factor. And so developing discrepancy is the idea of we all have goals, right? If I ask each and every person on this, on this zoom, what they want to do in five years, where they want to be, they would all have an idea or at least something that they would like to do in the next five years. So you ask patients questions like, okay, how do the things that you're doing today help you get closer or further away from that goal, developing a discrepancy between their current behaviors, and where they want to be. Another thing is avoiding arguments and confrontation. So when we hear something that maybe we don't think is an accurate statement, we tend to want to confront it head on, right? I'm going to go and write the information, but that becomes argumentative and confrontational. And so rather than doing that, or, or even if we see resistance, right, we roll with it. And instead we explore it. So help me understand it more. Let me hear your story. And then another thing I would say is if we if we see something that they've done really well, we we support that um, we we help them build confidence. So so maybe in the case of a vaccine, maybe they're not sure about the COVID-19 vaccine, but they were really careful to get to take care of something else with their health or they were really careful to take maybe a different vaccine that they thought was very important. And so it's recognizing and supporting that that they really thought through their decision and and they're trying to make positive changes in their health. Those are some things that that really really you can think through and you can use as part of motivational interviewing. A lot of listening, a lot of seeking to understand as part of this conversation rather than combating and telling them information and, and telling them what to do.
0: I love this idea of asking reflective questions and, and truly listening. Um, For example, in this particular setting, we could simply ask the question, um, help me understand your concerns. Or it might be, tell me how COVID has impacted you. I would really, I'd really love to know your story. And asking those simple questions can show that you are putting value in the person rather than a decision. Um, and so uh, motivational interviewing is it's simply a tool, right? It's not perfect. It's not something that is going to um, change everyone's mind, nor is that the, the the goal. The goal is really to develop trust and to dialogue in a way that promotes that shared decision-making idea. So I, I wonder – let's get intensely practical here um, – can you give us some examples of how a healthcare professional may respond to a person that expresses concerns about a vaccine? Um, Maybe we can do one poor example, and then maybe you can contrast that with another example that embodies some of these principles that you've just talked about in motivational interviewing.
1: Sure. Uh, So let's take an example of efficacy, right? So a patient says, the COVID-19 vaccine can't, positive, can't possibly be effective since they you know, took it from start to finish in only a few months. So a poor example would be, well, you clearly don't know the scientific information behind this. Here's what they did. And then I would share that information. That would be a bad example. So if anyone's listening, this is bad. Do not, this would not be how I would hopefully respond. (laughs) But the idea is I would charge ahead and just say, no, like this is what science says. That's my poor example. So now let me right the wrong. Um, If a patient would say, you know, I'm just, I've got concerns about efficacy, right? It can't possibly be effective when they develop it so quickly. I might say, okay, um, tell me what you know about how a vaccine is developed and what the approval's like. Or I could ask a question about what have you heard about the vaccine and and whether or not it works. I could also, after I understand a little bit more of their perspective and their concerns, I could even say, what concerns do you have specifically about, about how it was developed? Once I understand that, then maybe I could say, would it be okay if I shared some information with you? Again, asking them permission, offering to share information helping them feel like they get to make the decisions because they do get to make the decisions, listening to them, hearing them expressing, even that, you know, you know, I understand that. I mean, sometimes when I hear something's been brought to market really quickly, I'm not sure whether or not it works too. And I've done some digging to figure out for myself, whether or not it works. I really like that last approach because it shares my own perspective because I don't, necessarily accept everything at face value not everything I read or see or hear in fact I'm usually pretty curious so I did want to do my homework and I did want to check and make sure because I'm certainly not going to want to recommend something or talk about something that I haven't dug and found out the information about
0: That's great. And it strikes me. uh, Another thing that sometimes we can do as healthcare professionals is to simply empathize by saying, you know, that's actually a concern that I've had myself. When we can say that honestly to a person that's um, across a table from us or in the same room as us, um, that speaks volumes um, and shows that you value their concerns and you value who they are. So um, thanks for those examples. Those are great. So I'm curious, do you think this particular approach, we're early on in having vaccines available, do you think this particular approach will move the needle in terms of helping some people uh, be more accepting of the vaccine or not?
1: I, I think so. But I'm saying I think so because it's still ultimately their decision. What I really hope is that it prompts conversation. It prompts building a trusting relationship with healthcare professionals, a safe space where they can talk about their concerns, what their goals are for their health, and that they can feel part of a collaborative relationship to help their health get better. And so, yes, while I would like to see vaccination rates improve, I care more about building trust, making sure people get taken care of, and and really showing them that, care and compassion are at the heart of what I do.
0: Yeah, that's great. There is uh, some preliminary work that's being done um, across really the United States, looking at motivational interviewing and whether it is effective at addressing um, vaccine hesitancy and helping people to think through um, the concerns they might have about vaccines. I think uh, you and I have been doing some work um, with a a federally qualified health center here locally. Um, There's also an interesting study that I wanted to mention out of the University of Pennsylvania recently that was done in the black community. They basically had some focus groups in a um, a barbershop where they simply talked to um, patients and about 90% of them um, were black and just asked them, what concerns do you have if a COVID-19 vaccine came to market? Would you get it? What things would keep you from it? Um, And they mentioned things like not trusting the medical establishment, um, concerns with the accelerated vaccine timeline like we've already discussed here, some limited data on both short-term and long-term effects, and also the current political environment that we're living in that um, in many cases um, really seems to promote racial injustice at times. And so these were big barriers for them there was a healthcare provider that was a part of each of those focus groups. And um, all of them said that receiving a recommendation about a vaccine from a trusted healthcare provider served as a facilitator for helping them to think through whether or not they would receive a COVID-19 vaccine in the future. So I, I do think we have some preliminary data that says this is an approach that values the patient, that builds trust, and then allows a dialogue to happen so that the patient can make an informed decision. So uh, I'm, I really am hopeful that um, this is a way that promotes all of those things as we communicate with patients. So Alita, I just wanna simply close by asking, do you have any final comments about this topic?
1: So thanks for asking. Uh, I, I think it's, the biggest takeaway is for all of us to remember that it begins with a conversation both if you're if you're a patient, well, we're all patients, right? So all of us are patients in some way, shape or form. Um, start that conversation, talk to your healthcare professional, uh, talk to your, I mean, I'm a pharmacist, go talk to your pharmacist, um, but talk to your doctor, talk to your nurse, talk to someone that you can trust in the medical community or find someone that you can trust in the medical community and have a conversation. And if you're on the other end and you're a healthcare professional as well as a patient, um, have a conversation, understand why people are hesitant about a vaccine or about anything related to their health. Use those principles, don't be argumentative, Um, collaborate with them, hear them, hear their story and, and start building those trusting relationships. And my hope is that maybe 2021 will be a much healthier year for us all.
0: Couldn't agree with you more on that hope. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We are thankful that you've lent us um, a good amount of your time and expertise today, uh, Lita. So thanks again.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Disrupt, a podcast from the Center for Pharmacy Innovation at Cedarville University. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and share the podcast with others. For more information on the Cedarville University School of Pharmacy and the Center for Pharmacy Innovation, visit www.cedarville.edu pharmacy. Thanks for listening.